I want to start by expressing my appreciation to the congregation here for the confidence that you've shown in me um, to invite me to come and speak to you this evening from God's Word. Anything I say tonight will not be true because I said it. It will only be true if God's Word says it. So I'm going to encourage you tonight to pick up your Bible and follow along with the passages that we'll be reading throughout the entirety of this sermon. I think the topic that we're considering is uh, an incredibly important topic. A dead church. Boy, none of us wants to be a part of a dead church. And so what we need to do is determine what it looks like, and you started that last evening, and need to determine how we can prevent ourselves from becoming that. That's what we're going to be working on here this evening. I'll tell you this, I am a walker, so I love this. There's all kinds of room uh, up here for me to move around. And I've also been known to walk to the very edge, to even where people think I'm going to fall. That's not going to be an issue. you got a gate up here. So I, I, you know, I'm going to be safe as I'm, I'm moving back and forth. A few months ago, presidential hopeful Hillary Clinton was speaking... Uh, about abortion. It was a discussion about abortion. And she was stating her regret that uh, there are women out there who would like to be able to abort, but for whatever reason are not being afforded the opportunity. And this is what she said in her, uh, in her discussion. She said, rights have to exist in practice, not just on paper. Laws have to be backed up with resources and political will. Now, this is what I really want us to catch. And deep-seated cultural codes, religious beliefs, and structural biases have to be changed. Now, Mrs. Clinton, and I hope that you were able to catch this. If you didn't, I'm going to make mention of it now. Mrs. Clinton lumped religious beliefs in with cultural codes and structural biases. She did what worldly-minded people always tend to do. She expressed the opinion that the belief of Christians, religious beliefs, come about as a result of the opinions of culture. So as the culture goes, so religious beliefs go. If you change cultural opinions, why religious beliefs will of necessity change because those of that mind believe they're the exact same thing. Theoretically, if one is content simply to go by Scripture when discussing spiritual things, she could not be more wrong. Turn your Bibles with me, if you will, to a well-known passage. Let's go over to Jude and read verse 3. Jude in verse 3. <clears throat> Jude in verse 3, and I read from the English Standard Version of the Bible. It says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation... 
I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. The Holy Scriptures, what Jude refers to as the faith there, was once for all delivered to the saints. By the latter portion of the first century, we had this truth. right? The same truth you and I are reading right now had been delivered all the way back in the first century. Now, in that time, cultures have risen, and they have died, and other cultures have come up to take their place, and they have died. And yet, here is that truth, exactly what it was when it was first given, exactly what it was when it was first handed down, not changed one bit. You're going to tell me? Religious beliefs are a product of one's culture. This truth has seen a lot of cultures come and go. And it remains exactly the same. So theoretically, she and those who think like her are absolutely wrong. Unfortunately, in the practice of so many Christians and congregations, she is disturbingly correct. You know, Satan, under the guise of a changing, shifting culture, has been so successful at worming his way right into the heart right into the mind, the, 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 the thoughts of so many Christians and convince them that it is appropriate, not only appropriate, it's absolutely the right thing to do. That as the opinions of the culture change, as its desires shift, well, the truth of the gospel, what we are seeking to present to them, it needs to shift and change with it. Saints good at that. How many buildings did you drive by here this evening? Filled with people, maybe not tonight, but certainly on Sundays. All claiming to worship the same God. All claiming to love the same Lord. All claiming to believe the same book. All believing and practicing different things. What in the world happened? Culture happened. And it continues to happen today. Now look, if one changes their opinion as a result of shifting opinions within the culture, and the thing is only an opinion, and it does not put one into sin, fine, change your opinion. We have all changed our opinions in the past. Only politicians seem to be the one who believes no one's allowed to change an opinion. Now, we've all changed our opinions, but when it comes to changing the faith once for all, delivered to the saints, or our willingness to stand for it, that change becomes deadly. 
And so what we want to do here this evening is look at three characteristics that I have seen just in my own observation and my own experiences of the culture-controlled Christian and the congregations that they make up. I have seen, and perhaps you have seen this as well, individual Christians and congregations that are in the process of capitulating to the culture, an undercurrent of fear, of timidity. They've gotten used to sitting at the feet of that tyrannical teacher, political correctness, and buying wholesale his great doctrine, do not offend. And so a desire not to offend begins to inform every decision, choice, and teaching that they are willing to make. Now, I don't want to downplay this particular fear because I believe we find tremendous people of faith. We're going to look at two of them in Scripture who, for a time, if only in one or two instances, did face this temptation. If I were to ask you, who is the strongest Christian, as you consider Scripture that we can read about in the pages of Scripture, who is the strongest Christian that you see there? I wonder how many people say the Apostle Paul immediately. Right? Paul. The man was incredible. Paul spent a year and a half in Corinth. Corinth was an absolute cesspool of wickedness and immorality. And Paul managed to have success there. Which makes what we read in Acts chapter 18 verses 9 and 10 even more striking. Acts chapter 18 verses 9 and 10. Back in verse 8. You find Crispus, a ruler of the synagogue, a ruler of the synagogue, a man of influence, a man of, uh, of, of power, people, one that, that people would have looked up to. He became a Christian. I mean, things are going really well here in Corinth. And then out of the blue, seemingly, you come to verses 9 and 10. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. Now, I don't believe the Lord ever spoke just to hear himself speak. I don't believe he ever said something just to say it. Why would the Lord feel the need to appear to Paul, who's having success? Why would he feel the need to appear to Paul and say, Do not be afraid. Do not be silent unless Paul was feeling a sense of fear and considering being silent. What was his time like in Corinth? Well, do you remember the first letter that he wrote to those brethren? 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 3. Or, or I'm sorry, chapter 2. Yeah, that's right. Verse 2 and or chapter 2 and verse 3. You remember what he said to them? 
For I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. That's what he said he was experiencing when he was there. Weakness, fear, and trembling. And so the Lord appeared to him and said, Paul, keep on speaking. Don't be afraid. No one's going to attack you in this city. Why would he say no one's going to attack you unless the threat of attack was real? Preaching Christ and him crucified was a direct assault to the values and the culture of Corinth. You see, that city, it was not just difficult to preach the gospel in that sort of environment. It was potentially deadly to preach it there. The repercussions were very real. The possibility of more than just verbal abuse was very real. And it was something that Paul faced. And if the temptation to stop wasn't real, then why did Jesus say to him what he said? Paul's son in the faith, Timothy. In his second letter to Timothy, Paul seems to hint that perhaps Timothy dealt a little bit with fear and timidity. Turn over there to 2 Timothy with me, if you will. Let's read chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. 2 Timothy 1, verses 6 and 7. Second Timothy 1, 6 and 7. He said, For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Now notice, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So if fear, timidity, was something that Timothy was dealing with, some have said it, it seems to be just a disposition of his. If that's true, Paul's saying to him, you need to rise above that, Timothy. Rather than succumbing to fear and not doing what you need to do, rise above it, fan into flame. The gift of God that has been given to you through the laying on of my hands. Do your work with power. Do it with love. Do it with self-control. But if you are afraid, if you are fearful, remember that spirit is not from God. I bet that had an impact on Timothy when he read that. It ought to have an impact on us as well. Let's not pretend. that the temptation to remain silent is not real. Particularly when we are surrounded by a culture that is not sympathetic to our cause, that is not sympathetic to what we teach, that is not sympathetic to our Lord. Let's not pretend that temptation does not exist. And let's not pretend there is no fear. There is no timidity. 
when repercussions for what we are teaching and practicing, who we are loyal to, when those repercussions can be very real things and very painful. But what did Paul say to Timothy? You need to rise above that. Now, we're going to talk more about that towards the end of the sermon as we get into methods for how we rise above it. But there are many who don't. There are many who give in to that temptation. And it necessarily leads to the next point we want to consider tonight. When you have Christians in congregations that are culture-controlled, who have become absolutely terrified of offending anybody with the message that they preach, they will of necessity become a compromising church. It's simply the next in a logical progression. Now what is compromise? It's a term that we use pretty often there in Lexington, the famous great compromiser, right? Henry Clay was there. Compromise, what is it? It's when two sides... They've just not been able to come to an agreement. They both want what they want. And so eventually, if there's going to be any sort of peace, all right, I'll make some concessions, you make some concessions, and we'll see if we can get right there in the middle. We're not getting what we want, either one of us. We're both giving up something, and hopefully in the process of doing that, while we can meet in the middle and at least have some form of peace. The great problem with doing that, when it comes to the faith once for all delivered to the saints, is stated by Paul in 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. And again, we're looking at passages that are familiar to Christians, but they become familiar for a reason. We need to bear in mind what they say. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says this, All Scripture... That's what we're holding right now in our hands. As you look down and read your your passage here, this is the scripture. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Well, what is the end goal? That the man of God may be competent or complete, equipped for every good work. Now, where did he say the scripture comes from? He said it right there in verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God. No man created the faith, beloved. No man came up with this. What does that mean? It means this message is not ours to compromise. That's what it means. Paul makes a striking statement in the first chapter of Galatians. I want to read verse 6. Galatians chapter 1 and verse 6. Galatians 1 and verse 6. He said to his Galatian brethren, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different Gospel. I don't know how long it's been uh, since you've studied Galatians, either in like a Bible class setting or in your own personal uh, study for your own uh, edification. But compromise with Judaizing teachers 
was a terrible problem for the Galatian brethren. And Paul really gets on them as he goes throughout that letter. But one of the things that he demonstrates to us, and it's such an important point, one of the key thoughts of the Galatian letter, we must present God's word precisely as God presented it. It is not enough to present this mostly correct. It's not enough to present this 99% correct. We must present it exactly as God presented it. Look back down at verse 6. I think this is something that is, is missed from time to time. I want you to see who he said is being deserted in this process. Galatians 1 and verse 6. He didn't say the gospel was being deserted, though it certainly is. Note who he said was being deserted. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you. So what's the big deal with changing just a little bit of this message? It's not simply deserting the message. It's deserting the one who called us. It's deserting God. That doesn't come from Adam. That comes from the Holy Spirit. You know something else Paul does in Galatians? He shows that at least he believed the gospel was more than the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't want to go into this in great detail. But he includes in the gospel what is considered doctrine, which simply means teaching. And in Galatians, and in other epistles as well, but especially in Galatians, he shows this idea of a gospel-doctrine distinction to be absolutely man-made and not something that came from God. Now, maybe somebody says, well, hold on a second. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, there in the first few verses, Paul says, I delivered unto you as of first importance that which I received. And then he went on to talk about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I grant that. But he said, I presented unto you as of first importance, not only importance, not sole importance. Yes, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is at the heart of everything we do. None of this would matter if that didn't happen. But if it's all that did matter, this book could be a whole lot smaller than it is. That distinction, gospel doctrine, and we only need to believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, is a method of man to get away from the simple teaching of Scripture. And it's easy to see if we'll simply stick with what it says. Brethren, Paul could have had peace with those Judaizing teachers in Galatia. He could have had peace with the citizens of Corinth. He could have had peace with the citizens of Athens. He could have had peace with the citizens of Ephesus if he was just willing to compromise a little. Take the Judaizing teachers. When you read through Galatians, what you find, they were really pushing upon their Gentile brethren. You need to be circumcised as a condition of your salvation uh, in Christ. If Paul would just have said, okay, 
I don't necessarily believe that. But look, I understand you do. I understand it's an important doctrine for you. And you just keep on believing that. And you keep on teaching it. I don't necessarily agree. But look, it's not that big a deal. If Paul would have done that, there would have been no animosity from the Judaizers. Absolutely none. He would have compromised and given them what they wanted. He didn't do it. Why not? Now we'll come back to that in a moment. Let's turn over to 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10. Let's get an example of some of Paul's teaching in his time in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10. Now let's bear in mind, history tells us that Corinth was one of the most immoral, wicked cities in the ancient world. At the time, Paul was there. This is what Paul said, verses 9 and 10. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's the sort of thing Paul was preaching in an incredibly wicked and immoral city. If Paul would have just said, look, I want to I preach to you Christ, the, the, the fact that there was a man called Jesus... I want to preach to you that he was crucified on a cross, that he was resurrected, and would have just left it at that. Did not feel the need to include all the moral imperatives required in truly believing in Jesus Christ. If he would just said, look, offer middle assent to this, just say you believe in Christ. And then go on about your business. If he would just have done that. Would he had to a fear attack in Corinth? No. Because he wouldn't have said anything that would have offended them. Let's jump over to Paul's time in Athens. Let's go to Acts chapter 17. Athens was the idolatry capital of the world. If we were to look up in verse 16, we would see that Paul's spirit was provoked within him as he walked through that city. Absolutely devoted to idolatry. That was the culture. That was their values. That was what was important to them. And this is what Paul said. Let's look at Acts 17, 24 and 25. And then we'll jump down to verse 29. The God who made the world and everything in it. The God. Well, hold on a second. They got shrines to all kinds of gods. The God, he said, who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Jump down to verse 29. Being then God's offspring, he's talking about uh, continuing the, the, the theme here, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. 
the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And in the first part of verse 32, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. The idolatry capital of the world. Statues of silver, gold, stone, wood, the art, the imagination of man everywhere. Temples here, temples there, temples all over the place. And Paul went in there and he said to them, the God who created everything, he doesn't dwell in temples. He's not the product of the art and the imagination of man. And then he introduced Jesus and spoke of the resurrection. Do you think he would have gotten a better hearing, a more willing hearing, if he would have said, look, I notice you've got this altar here to the unknown God. I'd like to talk to you a little bit about him. Now look, all these other idols you've got, fine, keep them. All I'm asking you to do is maybe just elevate this one a little more. Think of it as a pyramid. Just put this unknown God at the top, give him a lot of worship, and then, what, you trickle down to the rest as well, but mainly just him. If he would have just compromised a little bit, there's no doubt he would have had a greater hearing. Remember what happened in Ephesus when Paul was there? Remember how a riot ultimately ensued? Certain silversmith, remember him, Demetrius, had the whole crowd crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Another false god, another idol. Eventually an entire coliseum was filled with rioters and, and Paul was seeking to go in and speak to them. And some of the, the, the officials of the city said, oh, no, 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 Paul, you can't go in there right now. Not when they're doing this. Why did he have to speak against Artemis? You think he was oblivious to how they felt about Artemis? Of course not. He knew. So why did he feel the need to mention that? Why didn't he just compromise a little bit? Paul's going to give us the answer. Let's go back to Galatians 1 and let's read verses 11 and 12. Galatians chapter 1 verses 11 and 12. He said, for I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Note this well, beloved. Paul did not compromise the message because it was not his to compromise. It's as simple as that. Today, Christians are compromising on sexual sins. And I'm not talking about our denominational friends. 
I think it would do us all very good to stop talking about our denominational friends sometimes and really take a look at ourselves. Today's Christians, some Christians, I'm not, don't want to paint with a broad brush here, just speaking of my own experiences. Today's Christians are compromising on sexual sins, on the role of women within the church, on fellowship issues, even on what removes sins from the soul. I am reminded of God's statement to Adam in the garden. When Adam and his wife had eaten the fruit, their eyes were open, they were ashamed of their nakedness. What did God say to them? Who told you? You were naked. Who told them? They could compromise on these things. What new revelation has come to them that God has not made the rest of us privy to? What secret correspondence is God engaged in with them that he is not engaged in with the rest of the, the, the Christians and saints in this world today? What is it? And when the question is asked, by what authority do you do these things? The answer is always the same. Times have changed. Culture has changed. And we've got to change the gospel message and the truth contained within to satisfy the culture. May the day perish, beloved, when Christians first came to believe that the only one we need not concern ourselves with offending is God. Why can nobody else be offended except for God? When did that happen? Why is it happening? The message is not ours, brethren. We don't have the right to compromise it. And those churches that believe they do. And it leads into the final point that we want to consider along these lines. The culture-controlled church, terrified that it might offend someone, willing to compromise pretty much anything to satisfy people, has lost its focus. I want to consider a few passages from the Gospels. Let's turn our Bibles to John 3 and verse 17. John 3 and verse 17. <clears throat> the passage says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Turn a few pages to the 10th chapter. Let's read verse 10. John chapter 10 and verse 10. Our Lord says in this passage, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And turn maybe just one page or two pages in your Bible to chapter 12. Let's read 27 through 32. John 12, 27 through 32. Jesus said in his time... Uh, approaching for the crucifixion, he said, Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? 
But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Why did Jesus come here at all? It wasn't to fix social injustices. Though, if people would simply follow Christ, they would fix themselves. It wasn't to support politicians. It wasn't to spearhead a political or social reform. It wasn't to entertain the masses. It was to provide a means of escape from Satan and from sin. And to show men, if you would please the Father, this is the way that you must live. That's why Jesus came here. And in fulfillment of his father's purposes, he purchased the church with his own blood. And what is the reason for the church's existence? What is the role, the duty, the obligation of the church? To fulfill those very same purposes. Turn your Bibles with me, if you will, to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. And then we're going to go over to 2 Timothy 2. But 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. This is what Paul said to Timothy, I hope to come to you soon. But I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And 2 Timothy 2 and 19. 2 Timothy 2 and 19. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. The Lord's church is not here to lead political or social reforms. It is not here to entertain the masses. It is here to fulfill Christ's purposes. It is here to tell men, every man, regardless of race, regardless of language, regardless of culture, regardless of any of it. There is one way to the Father, and that's Jesus Christ. There is one way to have your sins removed. And that's to be washed in the blood of the Lamb. And when one becomes a Christian, when one names his name, they must cease from iniquity. Now that requires bold, clear, unapologetic teaching it requires a willingness to offend people not for offense's sake 
but because there's only one message that can save man. And some will be offended by it, but you know what? Then they'll be offended by it. It's offended me in the past. And I would imagine it has offended you. There are worse things than being offended. Hellfire being one of them. Sadly, the culture-controlled church has lost its focus as well as the ability to fulfill its obligation. So how do we avoid? How do we keep that from happening to us, individual Christians, and to the congregations that we are a part of? I think there are several things. And here's the thing about them. They're simply the product of reading the Scripture. There is no magic incantation that suddenly removes all of this. There's no secret thing. It's just right here. But we have to know what it says. And I think the first step is this. We remember what God has done for us and where we'd be right now if he had chosen not to act. Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to read the first four verses. Now, we could just take this to the rest of the chapter. But we're just going to read the first four. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, and I want to tell you, There are not two more wonderful words in all the Bible than those two words at the beginning of Ephesians 2.4. We see what our condition was. We see how hopeless it was. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, he did what he did so that we could be saved. I want to encourage you To live with that at the forefront of your minds every single day. Let that inform every decision that you make. And secondly, with the mercies of God at the forefront of our minds. Brethren, let us get ourselves and stay right where we belong, which is on the altar of self-sacrifice. Turn your Bibles to Romans 12. Let's read verse 1. Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. And I know we're running out of time, so so just just listen to me, read it. I'm going to pick it up a little bit as we go here. Paul said, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. And appealing by that means this is going to be your motivation. What God has done for you is the thing that will motivate what comes next. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. He uses that Mosaic law 
uh, word picture here. He, he's using uh, an illustration. Think of that animal that was sacrificed. It gave its final moment of life in service to God. It died in the sacrifice. This is what he's saying for us, and this is the significance. You and I, we walk up to that final moment, and we live the rest of our lives right there. We live the rest of our lives in service to God. That's what that means. Third, I don't think this point can be emphasized enough. Third, we spend less time listening and reading what people say about the Word of God and more time in the Word of God. Do you remember why the Bereans were so noble? They searched the scriptures daily to see if the things Paul was teaching were so. That's Acts chapter 17, verses 11 and 12. You ever wonder, and it's not this way for many, for, for, for many congregations, but it is for some. You ever wonder when it got to the point that a textual Bible study, a textual Bible class, required something besides the Bible to engage in? You ever wonder when that happened? Why does that happen? No, brethren, I'm not saying that it's wrong to do it, but if we want to have a textual study in the book of Romans, why can't we just have the book of Romans? If we want to have a textual study in one of the other epistles of the gospel, why can't we just have that? Why do we have to have another book? I think God gave us the perfect one. Perhaps it's something to consider. I think fourth, we accept the fact that there will be persecution. Just accept it. And rather than weakly begging God or petitioning God to take it away from us, we petition him to let us face it as Christ faced it. I want you to read with me 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through 16. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 16. This is what Peter said there. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. You ever find it striking that those we see persecuted the apostles, Christ, didn't ask God to take the persecution away. They simply asked that his will be done and that they have the strength to get through it. Finally, remember where your loyalty lies. We're going to be judged by this culture. And there's no question about that. When we seek to stand for Christ and his truth, we are going to be judged by this culture. 
I want to encourage you to face that judgment with the same attitude as Paul. We can read about it in 1 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4. You know, a lot of Christians don't even know these verses are here. But in this day and age especially, how far this attitude could go for all of us if we would willingly take it. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. Notice, it is the Lord who judges me. This world, this culture, is doing everything that it can to frighten Christians, to lead them to compromise, to cause them to lose focus. The only way it can be successful is when we let it. So don't. Stand firm. Stand fast. Stand faithful. And one day, we will hear those blessed words. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Does that give you chills? It does me. You see, that's what it's all about for us. That's what it's all about. That's why we can say to this culture, as it attacks us, as it tries to rip us apart and discourage us and frighten us and motivate us to compromise and motivate us to quit to quit that's why we can say to them you know something with me it is a very small thing that i am judged by you it is the lord who judges me are you a christian here this evening if you're not you've got the opportunity do you truly believe that jesus is the christ i hope that you do if you believe, let that belief become Bible faith. And Bible faith requires obedience. Repent of your sins. Confess your faith in Jesus as Lord. And have your sins washed clean in the waters of baptism. Rising up out of that water a new creature. And on the road that leads to heaven. If you're subject to the call of the gospel, won't you please come forward now. As together we stand and sing.